0: Aum. Tadekam smaramas Tadekam vajamaha Tadekam jagat sakshi rupam namamaha Tadekam nidhanam niralam vamisham Bhavam bodhipotam sharanyam vrajamaha OM SHANTI 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 On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship,
1: to that alone the witness of the universe do we bow, to that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of samsara do we come for refuge. Oh bees, bees, bees. Good morning. Today our topic is waking up. We were reading uh, Buddha's Life two weeks ago and we talked about how Buddha wouldn't call himself a man. He would just say, I am awake. So this idea of waking up was appealing to me very much reading about Buddha's life. And I thought we ought to take it up as a lecture topic. Then I found (laughs) that I'm not qualified to speak on waking up. (laughs) But anyhow, we had took up the topic so we'll try to talk about it. It's a hot topic also nowadays in certain circles, in the New Age circles, in the Neo... There's a, there's a kind of uh, movement called the Neo-Advaita Movement, the new advaita Movement, teachers like Eckhart Tolle and... Um, mm, anyhow, the... the uh, what are their names? Shanti, Shanti something anyhow all these teachers they're in the neo advaita movement they talk a lot about waking up you just have to wake up that's all there is to it well that's really what vedanta is all about waking up from the sleep of ignorance somehow we are not quite fully awake although we are awake right now most of us uh, we are still kind of in a dream at the same time, a dream of maya. And Vedanta says, we just we need to wake up from this dream. So Sri Ramakrishna says there are four types of beings in this world. And he takes the help of a very nice little story to illustrate these four different types. He takes the illustration of some fishermen who are going to cast their nets in a tank in a pond pond is full of fish, and so they cast their nets, and they're going to catch some fish. And uh, in Bengal, they, they love fish, you know. <laughs> so mm, they, uh, he, they cast their nets, and some fish are so clever that they're never caught in the net. They avoid the net altogether. Sri Ramakrishna says, these are the ever-free souls. They are never caught. They are never bound. It's a very special class of being, very few of them. They're never caught by Maya's net. Then there are the, the uh, struggling, those who struggle to get out of the net. When they cast their net, the fish start swimming about and trying to escape, and a few of them jump out, and they land with a big splash, and the fishermen say, oh, there goes a big one. He got away. So those who escape the net are called the liberated. They are awakened, as it were, from the dream of Maya, they are liberated from Maya's net. But Sri Ramakrishna says, by not by all means all of the fish escape. Many, though they struggle, they are caught. Those are the struggling. It's the third class of people, the struggling, those who are struggling to get free. And the last class Sri Ramakrishna calls the bound souls. What they do, they go and bury themselves in the mud. Maybe one strand of the net is caught between their jaws and they go and bury deep down in the mud, and they think, ah, we are quite all right here. But they don't know. They don't know that the net is going to be drawn up very soon, and they're going to perish. So, how long will these bound souls stay asleep in the mud? How long will the... Uh, Since beginningless time, immersed in darkness and sleep, when will they awake? There are two awakenings here that are relevant, I think. The first is this awakening, this realizing that we are bound in the first place, many Many people in this world, most people in this world, don't realize that they're, that they're dreaming. They don't realize that they're bound souls. They think we are quite all right, not realizing that Maya's net is about to take them in, the fishermen are about to haul in their mm, catch. The struggling fish have realized at least a net has been cast. And that the true awakening, the awakening that really is... Uh, the awakening is the liberation awakening to our true nature awakening to infinite peace and joy to put the put the sleep to sleep sri ramakrishna used to sing a song my sleep is broken how can i slumber any more for now i am wide awake in the sleeplessness of yoga o divine mother Made one with thee in yoga sleep at last. My slumber I have lulled to sleep forevermore. So that's the, the big awakening. So this first awakening, awakening to our condition, when will it come? Sri Ramakrishna says, the bound creatures, entangled in worldliness, will not come to their senses at all. They suffer so much misery and agony, they face so many dangers, and yet they will not wake up. The camel loves to eat thorny bushes. The more it eats the thorns, the more the blood gushes from its mouth. Still, it must eat thorny plants and will never give them up. The man of worldly nature suffers so much sorrow. And affliction, but he forgets it all in a few days and begins his old life over again. Suppose a man has lost his wife, or has she, she has turned unfaithful. Lo, he marries again. So we cannot help such a person. We can, of course, lead a horse to water, but we can't make it drink. So such people, we cannot wake them up. But. A time will come when even such people will awaken. They must awaken in this life or in some future life. Awakening must come. Sri Ramakrishna says some people must pass through many experiences and perform many worldly duties before they can turn their attention to God. So they have to wait a long time. If an abscess is lanced before the right time, the result is not good. The surgeon makes the opening when it is soft and has come to a head. Once a child said to its mother, Mother, I'm going to sleep now. Please wake me up when I feel the call of nature. My child, said the mother, when it is time for that, you will wake up yourself. I shan't have to wake you. So a time will come when we shall feel the call of nature, when all will feel the call of nature. This first awakening, it seems, is not up to us. We all know people who are like this, no matter how what we say or do, how many spiritual books we leave lying around the house. Um, we can't stir up any spiritual interest in them. Only a, a Sri Ram, someone like Sri Ramakrishna or Swami Vivekananda could do it sometimes, sometimes. So how does the awakening come? Swami Vivekananda says, So long as our needs are confined within the limits of the physical universe, we do not feel any need for God. It is only when we have had hard blows in our lives and are disappointed with everything here that we feel the need for something higher. Then we seek God. Blows are what awaken us and help to break the dream. They show us the insufficiency of this world and make us long to escape to have freedom. So it is, oftentimes, it is the blows and the struggles of life and finding that after all the struggles and all the joys, we still feel unsatisfied that the awakening comes, this first awakening. For Buddha, how did it come? He saw, although his father had tried to protect him from all misery and suffering, he Came across a desperately sick person. He came across an old man tottering on a stick without any teeth. He came across a funeral procession. These things deeply impressed it on his mind, the ephemeral nature of the world. And that first awakening, that longing to know the truth, woke in his heart. Until this first awakening comes, Spirituality is a closed book. The second awakening, the real illumination, escaping from the net, realizing the truth, seeing things as they really are, becoming a Buddha. About this, it is difficult for us to talk. We are trying to talk about that which cannot be described in words and which, which, moreover, we haven't experienced, so it's difficult to talk about it. But we understand from the, what the sages report that it is complete and irrevocable. It's just a matter of seeing. Tat-tomasi, in the words of the rishi. Tat-tomasi, thou art that. And the response, Aham I am that infinite existence, consciousness, bliss, absolute, dawns in the heart. (coughs) In between these two points, this first awakening to the spiritual life and the final awakening, the, the illumination, there are many stages, many steps. We can say many little awakenings we get glimpses of spiritual truth, glimpses of devotion, glimpses of peace. We are moving not from error to truth, but from lower truth to higher truth. As Swami Vivekananda says, we're moving from lower truth to higher truth, step by step, as we awaken from a dream. Maybe we awaken into another dream, but it's a truer dream. These interest me very much, these little awakenings, because we, we all have tasted these little awakenings, or we wouldn't be here in the first place. And they come, and they come more the more we strive for them, and the more we struggle for them. What brings on such experiences is difficult to say. It might be intense prayer carried on for a long time, or deeper meditation or simply hearing a beautiful poem, or hearing a beautiful song, or walking at night in the moonlight on a snow-covered field. (laughs) Suddenly, we are lifted to a different state of consciousness, perhaps one of utter peace, or overwhelming love, or deep, unshakable certainty in the reality of spirit. From these little awakenings, we tend to slip back into slumber, as it were. But the memory, the memory of that glimpse spurs us on. Spurs us on to become established in that state, that higher state. There's a beautiful and famous poem by William Wordsworth. He was one of the great mystic poets, a nature mystic called he calls it an ode intimations of immortality from recollections of early childhood probably one of his most famous poems I'd like to read out uh, just a couple of stanzas I think it's relevant to our discussion he starts out the poem recalling his childhood how in his childhood everything seemed so wonderful full of spirit there was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. Then he complains that this perception vanished. As he grew older, he lost that perception. It is not now as it hath been of yore Turn wheresoever I may, by night or day, the things which I have seen I now can see no more. The sunshine is a glorious birth, but yet I know, where'er I go, that there hath passed away a glory from the earth. And he asks, Whither is fled the visionary gleam? Where is it now, the glory and the dream? one funny thing about the poem he he likens this state of glory to a dream and we would say the opposite it's the dream that we're trying to wake up from but I think we understand the point that as a child he felt some kind of special something some kind of spiritual knowing that he lost as he grew older and I think it appeals so much because it rings true with us too there's something wonderful about the fresh mind of a child. And in childhood, everything we experience directly, and yet that wonder, that curiosity, that marveling of childhood, it fades away as we grow older. It fades away. Sri Ramakrishna was talking about his nephew, Shivu. At Kamarpakur, I used to talk to Shibu, who was then a lad of four or five years old. When the clouds rumbled and lightning flashed, Shibu would say to me, "There, Uncle, they're striking matches again." And one day I noticed him chasing grasshoppers by himself. The leaves rustled in the nearby trees. "Hush, hush," he said to the leaves. "I want to catch the grasshoppers." He was a child. And saw everything throbbing with consciousness. So we too might ask, whither is fled the visionary gleam? Where is that freshness of perception where we see everything throbbing with consciousness? Where is that thrill of being alive? Where is that simple joy in little things that seeing everything as conscious? There's an incident recorded in one of our magazines I read a number of years back about a Brahmacharan who had joined the Ramakrishna order. He had joined in one of the centers in South India. And, of course, he had been, uh, had his spiritual initiation, and he was meditating on Sri Ramakrishna and studying the books about him and uh, reading all about uh, Mutt, our headquarters. But he had never been to Mutt. He had never been to Calcutta. He had never seen any of the holy places. So he was studying about them and reading about them and thinking about them. And uh, the brothers of the order, when they have passed about two or three years, they're sent to the headquarters for their training, at the training center. So he also got his chance, and he came to Belormut for the first time. And he was simply overwhelmed. He was, his tears were flowing profusely, seeing Sri Ramakrishna's temple and bowing down before Sri Ramakrishna in the temple and seeing all the holy places, again and again he was overcome with devotion and weeping and in the evening prayer. It was What an ecstasy to be with all the brothers singing the sacred hymns to Sri Ramakrishna. The whole day was one long ecstasy of devotion. Now the next day, Brahmacharan, of course, he was still there at Belarmat and he saw all the same holy places and was bowing down in the same temple to Sri Ramakrishna and singing the same hymns in the evening prayer. But he wasn't weeping. (laughs) He didn't have that same intensity of inspiration that he had that first day. Gradually, the experience of being at Belarmat became more ordinary. Not completely ordinary, maybe, but more or less ordinary. So what happened here? Why does this happen? There's the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. It's not quite true in this case. There was no contempt, of course, but I think it has to do with the nature of our mind, which uh, categorizes everything and filters everything and everything goes on in an endless cycle of thought the young child's mind as we were is so fresh it doesn't the young child's mind doesn't do that but as we mature our ego sense matures and uh, becomes very strong and the mind uh, constructs a whole system of concepts and categories a whole system of uh, a structure of concepts, categories and habits and mental pathways builds up and whatever we experience gets filtered through that pathway, through that structure. We, we label something, we, exper- we see something, we label it, we file it in a category, we judge it, we condemn it, finished. So we don't actually experience anything directly. Everything is filtered through that structure. Maybe we, we see a man. Oh, he's a man, one. Well, he's losing his hair, he's balding, two. Well, he's got a pot belly, three. He's, uh, he's a lawyer, four. Okay, we, we, we don't really see him. We only see these concepts that we apply to him. So this mental structure becomes like a prison. We become imprisoned in our own minds, in the endless thoughts and concepts, the endless likes and dislikes, the endless desires and aversions and fears. When we experience something utterly new, this process subsides to a certain extent. That's what happened to the Brahmacharya, that first day at Bidramat. Everything was new. And with intense sensations, intense uh, physical and uh, sensations like, say, eating some really good chocolate, that process can stop or hearing some really beautiful music, that process can stop for a moment. But if it's just so-so chocolate, the mind goes, oh, so-so chocolate, and keeps on going. (laughs) For a moment. We are in the moment. Not categorizing, not judging, not comparing to the past or planning for the future. Just in the moment, which is a state of equanimity, a state of joy. We're getting a glimpse. So the brahmachari at Belarmat, he was like that. He was a beginner on that day. It was all new. He had what we call beginner's mind. There's a beautiful book by a Japanese Zen master called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. He writes, In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. This idea of a beginner's mind, that the mind of a beginner is empty and fresh and ready to experience and ready to wake up. But the expert's mind has so many categories, and we know, oh, we already know about all that, and is not actually awake to the moment. So in the Zen meditation, when the person first starts the practice of meditation, he or she has a beginner's mind and approaches it with freshness. But gradually, they lose that beginner's mind, and it becomes just an ordinary something. It, does, it doesn't lead to awakening if it becomes an ordinary something, if it becomes a routine, a road to something. This beginner's mind, this idea of maintaining a beginner's mind is wonderful. I think we seek out new experiences precisely for this reason because we want to experience again that beginner's mind the freshness of beginner's mind and people are seeking ever newer and more exciting experiences and alright so for a moment we are satisfied but the real beginner's mind is attained when we can empty everything drop everything There's a nice story about a would-be student who approached a master for instruction, wanted, some, wanted to become a disciple, wanted to get some spiritual instruction. So he approached the master and said, Master, please teach me. And very quickly the master understood the nature of the mind of this person. So he invited him for a cup of tea and set out the tea cups and the teapot and began pouring a cup of tea for the student and filled his cup and he kept pouring the pot, and the, the tea was filled up the cup and started f- spilling over the edges of the cup and was f- spilling onto the saucer and then onto the table and started running down onto the floor. And the student said, "'Sir, stop! What are you doing? The cup is full! No more will go in!' "'Ah, just so,' said the master. "'Just so is your mind. Your mind is also full.' No more will go in. So, he's not ready to be a student because his mind is already full. He's already an expert, as it were. So, can we empty our cup, is the question. Can we empty our cup? Drop all the planning and worrying and judging and thinking. Then it can be filled. Then it can be filled with spirit. Spirit. Then it can be filled with the knowledge and experience of right now, of spirit. Then it can be awake. It's amazing to me, and I think probably to many of us, how much we can do while we're trying to meditate. We are taught in our tradition, we are given a mantra to repeat, and we are taught to repeat that mantra and to Just keep the mind focused on that mantra and and as thoughts come, just let them go. Don't follow your thoughts, just focus on the mantra. So when we first learn the mantra, we have to focus very hard to keep repeating it. But pretty soon, it's amazing, we learn how to repeat the mantra and at the same time, think of all kinds of other things. (laughs) We, th- we go on repeating our mantra and we think about all kinds of things. What I'm going to cook for dinner tonight and what I'm going to uh, do tomorrow and oh, I, I can't forget to do that one thing at work and I have to get a present for my, my mother for Mother's Day or whatever it is. So many thoughts going on. We're no longer, we're no longer meditating. We're not waking up that way. So this idea of beginner's mind is very attractive, very appropriate. The beginner's mind is empty. It is ready to receive. It is ready to wake up into the present moment and stop all those thoughts. If we're repeating the mantra, we're just repeating the mantra with the beginner's mind. Now, Swami Vivekananda assures us that all will eventually attain freedom. There's no exception to this rule. All will attain freedom. Sri Ramakrishna also assures us. And Swami uh, Vivekananda asks an interesting question. He says, if that is the case, why should we struggle to attain it? If everyone is going to be free, we will sit down and wait. Sounds like a good, good, it's a valid point. If all are going to be free, then we'll just wait, wait it out. We have many lives. We can just wait it out. Eventually we'll become free. He gives a reply. He says, in the first place, the struggle is the only means that will bring us to the center. The struggle is the only means that will bring us to the center. And in the second place, we do not know why we struggle. We have to. Of thousands of men, some are awakened to the idea that they will become free. The vast masses of mankind are content with material things, he says, but there are some who awake and want to get back, who have had enough of this playing down here. These struggle consciously, while the rest do it unconsciously. Actually, all are struggling, and life is a struggle. All are struggling. But how many of us can add our consciousness to it? How many of us can struggle consciously? Can we struggle consciously? This is the, the, the same idea as having the beginner's mind. Be conscious. When we are doing something, are we doing it with our whole mind? Or is the mind running to so many other things? I think it, the funny thing is that actually most of us don't really want to wake up. We may not be exactly happy in our dream, but it's a comfortable discomfort. We are comfortable there. Swami Vivekananda says that we are all miserable, that this world is really a prison, that even our so-called trailing beauty is but a prison house, and that even our intellects and minds are prison houses, has been known for ages upon ages. But... We cling to untruth, and we turn our back upon truth. We do not want to attain truth. We do not want anyone to break our dream. There's an old adage. You can wake up a sleeping person, but you cannot wake up the one who is merely pretending to be asleep. Maybe that is our condition, too. As children, we used to play that. We would pretend we were asleep and... (laughs) The other, the, <laughs> we would try to wake each other up. The, is, are they really sleeping or are they just pretending? So maybe that is our condition. In a sense, we're all just pretending to be asleep. And yet our ordinary life, our day-to-day life, it seems often seems so very ordinary. The sanctity is missing trapped in our own minds and hemmed in by the tyranny of our own thoughts, caught caught in between the past and the future, never awake to the present. It's like being in a bad dream. We must wake up. I think this is the first condition for waking up. We have to realize that we are dreaming. We have to recognize that we are dreaming and want to awaken. Swamiji says, The time will come when the whole of this dream will vanish. To every one of us, there must come a time when the whole universe will be found to have been a mere dream. Consciously or unconsciously, the whole universe is going towards that goal. But those who consciously strive to get free hasten the time. So, this is the point conscious striving. Conscious struggling. Swamiji used to say, Man, the infinite dreamer, dreaming finite dreams. Man, the infinite dreamer, dreaming finite dreams. We are infinite, and we're taking this finite dream to be everything. What is it that hems us in? What is it that keeps us in the dream? Swami Vivekananda says, The adamantine wall that shuts us in is egoism. We refer everything to ourselves, thinking, I do this, that, and the other. Get rid of this puny I. Kill this diabolism in us, not I, but thou. Say it, feel it, live it, until we give up the world manufactured by the ego. Never can we enter the kingdom of heaven. Swamiji calls it an adamantine wall, almost unbreakable. How do we break it? One of our Swamis gave a nice simile. If we want to boil water and we have... Say we're in a laboratory and we have a uh, scientific uh, hot plate where you can set the temperature exactly... Say we set that hot plate to 211 degrees Fahrenheit or 99 degrees centigrade and we put a beaker of water on it. We can leave that beaker there for a 100 years. That water will not boil. It will not boil. We need to give 100 degrees centigrade, 212 degrees Fahrenheit there's a certain minimum temperature we need if we want to boil the water. So likewise in spiritual life, there's a certain minimum temperature we have to attain in our striving. There's a certain minimum effort we have to put forth, a certain minimum longing that we need to cultivate to break the wall. One way to increase our temperature, is to read some of the fiery words of Swami Vivekananda. Swami Vivekananda was an awakener. He was an awakener of souls. He was an awakener of the world. And he exhorts us. So I'll read a, pa- a passage or two from Swami Vivekananda. Say to your own minds, I am he, I am he. Let it ring day and night in your minds like a song, and at the point of death declare, I am he. That is the truth. The infinite strength of the world is yours. Drive out the superstition that has covered your minds. Let us be brave, know the truth, and practice the truth. The goal may be distant, but awake, arise, and stop not till the goal is reached. Again, Swamiji quotes the Gita, the famous, the first words of Sri Krishna to Arjuna, which are very relevant to our conversation. Arjuna was immersed in dejection and weakness and wanted to get out of his duty and the state of tamas. And the very first words Sri Krishna tells him in the Gita:
0: "Gutastu kashmaramiham visamit samupasthitam." Anarya justa masvargyam akirti karam arjuna klaibhyam masmagam of partha naitatvayupa kshudram rida yabdaur balyam taktva tishtha parantapa
1: In such a crisis, whence comes upon you, O Arjuna, this dejection unbecoming to an Aryan? Disgraceful and contrary to the attainment of heaven, yield not to unmanliness, O son of Pritha. Ill does it become you. Cast off this mean-heartedness, and arise, O scorcher of your enemies. Swami Vivekananda says about the second shloka: If one reads this one shloka, one gets all the merits of reading the entire Gita. For in this one shloka lies embedded the whole message of the Gita. He elaborates. You are the pure one. Awake and arise, O mighty one. This sleep does not become you. Awake and arise. It does not befit you. Think not that you are weak and miserable. Almighty, arise and awake and manifest your own nature. Then, Another quote from Swamiji. I let every man and woman and child without respect of caste or birth, weakness or strength, hear and learn that behind the strong and the weak, behind the high and the low, behind every one, there is that infinite soul, assuring the infinite possibility and the infinite capacity of all to become great and good let us proclaim to every soul Uttishtata Jagrata Varani Bodhata Arise, awake, and stop not till the goal is reached. Arise, awake, awake from this hypnotism of weakness. None is really weak. The soul is infinite, omnipotent, and omniscient. Stand up, assert yourself, proclaim the God within you. Do not deny him. Teach yourselves, teach everyone his real nature. Call upon the sleeping soul and see how it awakes. Power will come, glory will come, goodness will come, purity will come, and everything that is excellent will come when this sleeping soul is roused to self-conscious activity. This is Swamiji's call to all of us. Arise, awake, again and again he repeats this Mantra from the Kata Upanishad Yama telling Nachiketa, arise, awake, and stop not till the goal is reached. Someone raised the question Arise, awake. Well, really, how can we arise if we're still sleeping? Shouldn't it be awake, arise? Shouldn't we first we awake and then we arise? I think rather First we have to arise. We have to rouse up ourselves and then the awakening will come. The awakening must come. So what happens when, we, when the dream breaks? When we know the mirage is only a mirage? When we know that we've been dreaming and we are now really awake? Mundaka Upanishad has the beautiful verse explaining this experience.
0: Bhidyate hridaya grantihi chidhyante sarva-saṃshaya chiyante chāsya-karmani
1: The fetters of the heart are broken, all doubts are dispelled, and all works cease to bear fruit when he is beheld who is both high and low. That moment, says Swami Vivekananda, that moment the, all the knots of the heart are cut asunder, all crooked places are made straight, and this world vanishes as a dream. And when we awake, we wonder how we ever came to dream such trash. The only trash we're dreaming, Swamiji says, we awake and we wonder, how, how could we be dreaming all that stuff? How beautiful. The idea that our heart has knots in it. The divine is shining right here, but there are twists and knots inside. They are cut asunder when we see, when we truly see, when we truly awake. I'd like to read a description of awakening from a different tradition, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. There's a beautiful description of the moment of awakening and what it is like which is Tibetan Buddhism actually is, uh, is just like Advaita Vedanta just about the same Nga, the, the path of Jnana it's from a book by one of the uh, Tibetan Lamas he writes that moment is like taking a hood off your head what boundless spaciousness and relief. This is the supreme seeing, seeing what was not seen before. When you see what was not seen before, everything opens, expands, and becomes crisp, clear, brimming with life, vivid with wonder and freshness. It is as if the roof of your mind were flying off, or a flock of birds suddenly took off from a dark nest. All limitations dissolve and fall away, as if, the Tibetans say, a seal were broken open. Imagine you are living in a house on the top of a mountain, which was itself at the top of the whole world. Suddenly, the entire structure of the house, which limited your view, just falls away and you can see all around you, both outside and inside. But there is not anything to see. What happens has no ordinary reference whatsoever. It is total, complete, unprecedented, perfect seeing. Your deadliest enemies, the ones who have kept you tied to samsara through countless lives from beginningless time up until the present, are the grasping, and the grasped. These, two are burned away completely like feathers in a flame, leaving no trace. Both grasping and grasped, what is grasped and the grasper, are freed completely from their very basis. The roots of ignorance and suffering are severed utterly, and all things appear like a reflection in a mirror, transparent, shimmering, illusory, and dreamlike. A beautiful description of the state of the awakened mind from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. I think we can feel the kinship with Vedanta here. Trying to give some idea of the glory of it, the amazing openness of it. We're in a small hut on the top of Mount Everest, and we can't see out because it's a small hut. Suddenly the whole hut breaks away and everything is opened up. So this experience, this knowing awaits all of us. It's only a question of when. I'd like to close to, by reading, again I've read it many times, Swami Vivekananda's letter to Sister Nivedita, when she was still Margaret Noble. He wrote a beautiful letter of awakening, about awakening. My ideal indeed can be put into a few words, and that is to preach unto mankind their divinity and how to make it manifest in every moment of life. This world is in chains of superstition. I pity the oppressed, whether man or woman, and I pity more the oppressors. One idea that I see clear as daylight is that misery is caused by ignorance and nothing else. Who will give the world light? Sacrifice in the past has been the law. It will be, alas, for ages to come. The earth's bravest and best will have to sacrifice themselves for the good of many for the welfare of all. Buddhas by the hundred are necessary with eternal love and pity. Religions of the world have become lifeless mockeries. What the world wants is character. The world is in need of those whose life is one burning love, selfless. That love will make every word tell like thunderbolt. It is no superstition with you, I am sure You have the making in you of a world mover And others will also come Bold words and bolder deeds are what we want Awake, awake, great ones The world is burning with misery Can you sleep? Let us call and call to the sleeping gods awake Till the God within answers to the call What more is in life? What greater work? The details come to me as I go. I never make plans. Plans grow and work themselves. I only say, awake,
0: awake. Oh, Sarvastarat durgani bhadrani Sarvasad buddhi mapnotu sarvasarvatranandatu durjanasadjano bhuyat sadjanas shanti mapnuyat shanto muchetabandhe bhyo muktashanyandhi mochayet swastiprajabhyaparipalayantam nyayena margena mahi mahi O brahmane bhya shubham astu nityam lokah samasta sukhino bhavantu. Loka sukhi no bhavantu om shanti, shanti, shanti
1: may all be freed from dangers may all realize what is good may all be actuated by noble thoughts May all rejoice everywhere. May the wicked become virtuous. May the virtuous attain tranquility. May the tranquil be free from bonds. May the freed make others free. May good betide all people. May the sovereign rule the earth following the righteous path. May all beings ever attain what is good. May the worlds be prosperous and happy. Oh, peace, peace, peace.